0: Let's stand. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Thank you for being here tonight. Revelation chapter 2. Thank you for being in church for almost four days straight here. And uh, it's, it's been very rewarding, but I, I imagine for most of us it's very exhausting. But thank you for being in church tonight. You're probably wondering, about why, why did I give this packet out and all these things here? It all goes with the message. It's just trying to give it a little bit more colorfulness. And I hope it will be a blessing and help you tonight. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking again at the church at Pergamus. I apologize this morning. I had so many things on my mind. I think I said several times the church at Smyrna, and i meant the church at Pergamos, So I'm sorry about that this morning. Church at Pergamus, Revelation 2, say amen if you're there. You have to aim me in the chair because I'm tired too, man. You, you're going to have to help me tonight so we get through the service tonight. Amen? Amen. Verse 12. And if you get tired, open this up and chew on the rock. That'll help you there. Amen. I won't tell you what hands touched it, but you can chew on the rock. Amen. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus, please circle Pergamos. Right. And by the way, if Jesus wrote us a letter, how would you respond to it? These things, saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. Aren't you glad the word of God is always sharp? I mean, it, you don't have to worry about it getting dull or blunt. It is always sharp. And our Lord said in verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And I don't know if you remember last week, but man, that was so good, amen, about Antipas and the church of Pergamus, the church by which the the gates of hell could not prevail. I mean, just so many good things there. But now we get to the second half of the message, verse 14. And our Lord does not, he does not, um, he doesn't hold back his words. And he's very truthful. And he's very candid, yet loving, but firm. And he said, but I have a few things against thee. He told the church at Ephesus, I have somewhat against thee. And the church at Smyrna, he had nothing against it. But the church at Pergamos, he said, I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there, and remember, there was Satan's seat. There was where Satan dwelleth. There was the worship of the Caesar. Remember that? Where people would enter the temple, take a pinch of salt and go up to the altar and cast that salt. And they would have to say loudly, Caesar is God. Because thou has there, notice this, and he's talking about now in the church. Them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Underline that, please. The doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And I had, was thinking, I was previously going to, was going to preach a series of messages from Numbers 22 to 25 to help us understand that. I'm just going to give you just a summary tonight and probably come back to this because you, there's some, some very, 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 very rich, uh, revival based application out of that, but tonight we're not going to do that. And he says, now, there you hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Notice this, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. So has thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitines, which you notice this phrase, which things I hate. Jesus is talking about two unbiblical doctrines that had infiltrated the church of Pergamos and had embedded itself there. And nobody had a problem with it. It was tolerated. It was propagated. And uh, this all... Now, Jesus is bringing this all up after Antipas had died. I don't believe Antipas let it in. But I believe that insidiously, I, well, let me back up. I don't believe Antipas allowed it to to get out there. I think he did his best to fight it. But I believe that that insidiously found its way there. Just I'm going to tell. You, listen to me tonight. Just why I keep bringing up things that I, I'm, I'm, I'm If you haven't figured this out, I, I'm against Calvinism. Calvinism is a poison. It's a deadly flower. Okay. But I'm going to tell you, with church this size, whether in the morning, evening, there's probably at least one or two people that come around here that don't believe the same thing and if they have their if they have their 5 minute opportunity they're going to they're going to infiltrate the church with it and that's not the only doctrine i'm concerned about i think there's some that visit our church because of the area we're in that have no problem with the charismatic movement and speaking tongues which is why we're going through 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night because i want to give you the i want you to understand the signs of a healthy church and the signs of an unhealthy church but I believe there's some who don't have a problem with speaking tongues and with Paula White putting her hands on our president's head and praying over him and saying she's got a new revelation. She's a charismatic prophetess, which is unbiblical in all manner. And in this day and age of tolerance, in this day and age, everybody wants to have kumbaya and feel good about things. I want to tell you, there's a Baptist church here that there's just some things we have to identify that are unbiblical. We say, man, you're you're old school. No, I, I'm just a, an old fundamentalist. Amen. And uh, yeah. Jesus talked about two doctrines here. Now, I don't have time to unfold all of them. I'm going to give you enough tonight. You're going to, if you don't get hot about it, you need to get your heart checked out. Yeah. Oh, and he said, verse 16, repent. There's a semicolon there. Repent or else yeah. I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them. With a sword in my mouth. By the way, Jesus always wins. Jesus always wins. Would you notice verse 17? I'm so encouraged how he ends this letter to them. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. And I'm going to give you a word study tonight for a few moments about the word overcome and the word Nicolaitine, So you can understand what Jesus is doing here. The him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That's why you have a cracker inside of here. I'm going to talk about the hidden manna. And we'll give him a white stone. That's why we have a white stone in there. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Last week we saw the church at Pergamos, the church... By which the gates of hell could not prevail. But time went along. change changing leadership. Some things came out. And unfortunately, this church became the church that let hell in. It can happen here. Don't fool yourself. It can happen here. And I might blow the lid off if God lets me tonight. On how it gets in, and the way it gets in, and what it does, and why there are preventative measures churches must have against some of these things that go on. It's not—it's not—it's not a guarantee it'll keep it out. But we have to do our part. And uh, this, this evening, as we we look at this subject, it's kind of a Bible study message this evening. I pray that you just would uh, give your ear to the Lord. And but the Bible says, "He that hath an ear, let's hear tonight." And Give your heart to the, give your heart to the Lord, your ear to the preacher tonight as we look at this subject matter tonight. Father, we ask this evening as we look at this church at Pergamus and we need to understand what our Lord is saying. That uh, Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask that you cleanse us from all filthiness of flesh and superfluity of naughtiness. And I ask you tonight that, um, Lord, you give us a teachable spirit. And you know, Lord, inside of me and inside of all of us, there's a little bit of a, of a rebellious spirit sometimes. We filter out what we want to hear. And we must, Lord, tonight humble ourselves before you and the word of God, which is absolute. Which is truth. And I pray tonight that you sanctify us through your truth because your word is truth. It's forever settled in heaven. It is perfect converting the soul. It is sure making wise to simple. And I ask tonight that, Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, that we go away, godly Christians, holy Christians, stirred up in our heart and soul as Pastor Howell preached from on Thursday. And resolved in our heart, That we want the doctrine of the church to be pure. And the hearts of your people to be pure. And our great desire is to lift up Jesus Christ, your son. And exalt the name of Christ. And honor you. Please help me tonight that the words of my mouth would honor you. And please you this evening. And that your people be taught and that you'd feed the flock of God right now. The Bible says to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may taste the see that the Lord is good. I pray the best way I know how, Lord, tonight I ask that you use me for your glory to help feed your sheep and care for them and tend for them. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pergamos was identified as a place where Satan's seat is or Satan's seat was. The word seat is the word thronos, as we saw last week. literally means that Satan had established his throne there. And as we saw last week, just by way of review, the reason why it was said that, that Pergamus was the location in the Roman Empire, there in Asia Minor, where the temple of Esculapius was. Esculapius was the god of medicine, and his symbol is represented by the snake that was coiled around the rod. His temple was covered with slithering stakes that if someone wanted to get healing for some matter, if they would be trustworthy of that, they would go to that temple and they would lay down on the floor and they would allow those slithering snakes and serpents to crawl over them. And they believed with all their minds and hearts that, that, that those snakes had healing powers. And if you allowed all those snakes to crawl over you, that you would be healed of your sickness. There were three temples that were there in the city of Pergamos. The ruins still represent that where those temples were. And those temples were there for the, de- for the worship of the emperor. The city of Pergamus was famous for the worship, for emperor worship. As we said earlier, the people were mandated, as they came into the temple to worship, they would stop there on the way in, and they would take a pinch of salt, they'd walk up to an altar, they'd cast the salt inside there, and they would exclaim, with without any shamedness, they would say, Caesar is God. Many cults and pagans worshipped were there. All of the Roman gods of mythology were worshipped there. Jupiter, and Mercury, and Venus, and Mars, and uh, Athena, Escalupius, as we mentioned, Dionysius, Dionysius, and so forth. There, the Magian high priest, there, the Magian high priest cult was there, and he was called. He was the first, if you will, that was called Pontifus Maximus, which now has been tra- been transferred down in other ways, which means chief bridge builder. And amazingly, of all things, there in that difficult city that was overrun by satanic worship and worship of the Caesars, amazingly, someone went there and planted a church. Amen. And someone got a burden in their heart to plant a church there. And the church started to grow and souls started to get saved. And they were able to have a pastor there. His name was Antipas. And Antipas was a disciple of the Apostle John. And John nurtured him and discipled and ordained him to the ministry there. Antipas gave his life for the work there. the Bible tells us there. That he was one of many martyrs. He was a faithful martyr of God. And this was a this was a great church when we ended verse 13. It was a great church in terms of what happened. But now we get to verses 14 through 17. And we see our Lord Jesus Christ bringing us some things that candidly He has to tell us. You know, I, I thank God that His Word, when you read His Word, there's so many things that encourage our hearts. When we think about just maybe if nothing else about the attributes of God, we think about our God, how great He is, just the very name of God. Uh, Elohim incorporates all of the Godhead, incorporates God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we think about how God reveals Himself as Lord in the book of Genesis, starting out there, as he starts out there, the, the word for Lord representing Almighty a God who is Almighty, sovereign over all things. And we see God as the mighty God and we see the names of God being embellished all throughout scriptures and the manifestation of God and all of the names of God representing his, if you would, his his, his essence, his attributes there. And those are wonderful things. And we think about all the names of Jesus Christ. And as we saw today in the morning service, we're just thinking about uh, about staying upon Jehovah, things of that nature. But at the same time, we look at the Word of God, and we can't help but realize that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And God has to tell us some things that are hard to swallow. And sometimes God has to give us the cod liver oil that we don't want to swallow there. And He has to give us that bitter pill to help us realize that who we are and what we are. And God wants us to realize that there's nothing that He does not see, and there's nothing hidden from God. And He wants us to understand that He wants us to have the victorious Christian life. And the victorious Christian life sometimes results in the Lord telling us some things that we don't want to hear. And you notice here in verses uh, 14, 15 and 16 to 17, our Lord is being forthright, candid and righteous and calling out the failures of the church at Pergamos. This evening, we want to see the church that let hell in. What you notice in our outline tonight as we look at the study this evening, beginning verse 14, I want you to see, first of all, the rebuke. I want you to see the rebuke. Now, rebuke is when basically when something's wrong, you have to tell that person you're wrong. And our Lord does that here. And unlike the church at Ephesus, I mentioned earlier, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, I have someone against thee. and the church here at Pergamos, he said, I have a few things against thee. And he lists two of them. It's the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Laotines. And so he talked about these things. Now, before I get to that, I, I want to mention the fact that Jesus was opposed about some things his church had. And he was disturbed about some things. And as we see this this evening, the two things that Jesus was disturbed and opposed about were on biblical doctrines, basically. They were on biblical doctrines. And I want to talk about doctrine for just a quick moment here that, that uh, doctrines are, are things that are important. Doctrine tells us how to live. A doctrine tells us what we believe. A doctrine helps us to determine once we know what we believe, how we're supposed to behave ourselves. Now, let me say this to you tonight. I want you to write this down if you can because it's important. Number one... Biblical doctrine is godly. Biblical doctrine is godly. Paul speaks about the doctrine according to godliness. Now, I know we like little devotionals. And I know that we want to be comforted. But I'm going to tell you tonight. The Bible is doctrine. Doctrine is the word of God. Without doctrine, you don't know what you believe. We have to have a foundation. And that foundation is doctrine. Doctrine is godly. The doctrine according to godliness. Secondly... Doctrine is guaranteed, okay? Doctrine is guaranteed. This means it is settled and established forever. That's why the psalmist said, Thy word, O Lord, is forever established in heaven. It is not to be added to or taken away from. We're not to give our conjecture. We're not to give our interpretation of it. The Bible itself interprets itself better than you and I can do it. Amen? We need to be very careful as we do our studies that you don't listen to the words of commentators and believe the commentator over the Word of God. The best commentary of the Word of God is the Word of God itself. Okay. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. You need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. God gives you pastors to help teach you the Word of God and to discern God's Word. And so we must understand biblical doctrine is godly. Biblical doctrine is guaranteed, but listen to me tonight. Biblical doctrine is to be guarded. Biblical churches guard the doctrines of the Word of God. Jude tells us we're to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Read your epistles very carefully. Doctrine is to be guarded. Read Acts 20 and Paul's a message to the elders there at at, at Ephesus, that they met in Miletus, and he told them that some will rise up among you. He said, wolves in sheep's clothing, they'll rise up among you, trying to draw away disciples and themselves there. So notice these unbiblical doctrines tonight. We're going to do a study here. Number one, the first unbiblical doctrine the Lord speaks of in verse 14 is the doctrine of Balaam. Let's look at it again. He said, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them... That hold. And literally the word hold means they're holding fast to. They believe. They believe it's gospel. They're a fight for it. By the way, would you fight for the word of God? Amen. Would you fight for the deity of Jesus Christ? Would you fight for the blood atonement? Would you fight for the bodily resurrection? Would you fight that the Bible is God's word in its entirety. It does not become God's word when you read it. It is God's word when you read it. Would you fight for it? And so, he says, I have a few things against against the... Uh, he says, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols to commit fornication. Now, let me give you a few things as we look at this. Number one, Balaam was a Gentile prophet. He was not a Jewish prophet. He was a Gentile prophet. We read about him in Numbers 22 to 25. Very interesting character. He's a very bizarre character. Uh, maybe future messages will we'll, we'll, we'll preach about him. But let me give you some things about just for the sake of time tonight. Um, Peter refers... We find Balaam mentioned three times in the New Testament. Here in Revelation 2:14, the doctrine of Balaam. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 14 to 15, Peter alludes to him, because Peter just like Jude talks about spiritual apostasy and he talks about apostates and uh, he talks about this man Balaam. He talks about the way of Balaam. Look at look at it with me, please. Second Peter 2 verses 14 to 15, he says of these apostates, because Balaam was an apostate. Which have forsaken the right way, and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam. Well, what is the way of Balaam? The way of Balaam, the son of Beast Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You want to underline that? It speaks of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass, speaking about his donkey, speaking with man's voice. Forbid the madness of the prophet. You know, when you go, when you go off, when you go off on, when you have wrong doctrine, God calls it madness. God says you're crazy. Amen? If you don't believe His word and you have some other false doctrine, God says it's madness there, okay? So we see the way of Balaam, it speaks about loving the ways of the righteous. Now look what Jude says. Jude, Jude 1.11. Jude refers to Balaam as the error of Balaam. Would you notice this? Woe unto them. He's, again, Judas talking about apostasy and the apostates, those who have revealed truth but refuse to believe it. And he says, woe unto them for they have gone in the way of Cain and, and greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Now we see two things. He loved the wages of unrighteousness and in his error, he, he, his error was he did it for reward. Well this man was a four higher, four higher prophet. He could be bought. He was a man that could be bought by the wages of unrighteousness. He was a man given to covetousness. Both Peter and Jude refer to him as a man who loved money. He wanted money. He could be paid off and do whatever was necessary. Now, we see Balaam here. We see a second person. We see mentioned here, Balak. Now, Balak was the king of Moab. Balak watched because there were two mightier kings than him in the land as Israel was... In the the wilderness journey. Those two kings, their names were Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og were Canaanite kings. They were Ammonites. Sihon and Og were the forerunners to the Philistines. I have a message I preached a while back about Og from Deuteronomy chapter 3. You might want to look it up. Og was a much larger giant than Goliath. The bed that this man slept in is described as being as long as about 12 to 13 feet long. This man probably was about 11 feet tall. Maybe 10, 11 feet tall. He was much, much taller, much bigger man than Goliath. I mean, he, they were, he, these men were the forerunners there. Sihon, in, in his quest, had actually conquered some of the land of the Moabites. And so the Moabites were fearful of these Ammonites. They didn't want to mess with them. And Israel, as they were trying to make the way, they, they, they reached out to Sihon. They reached out to Og. They said, listen, we need to go through the king's highway. We need to find our way through. We won't mess with you. We won't touch anything. We won't ask you for your money. We won't ask you for your, for money to help us. We won't ask you for your water. We won't ask you for just let us have our way. And Sihon said, no, because they were a very big, formidable foe. All of the Ammonites were great giants. They were big men. They were warriors. They were very fearful. The children of Israel, as they were making their way through there, they actually were intimidated by it. And you can read the over there in Numbers where the children of Israel, that God just enabled them and they, without any ado, without any problems, they overcame Sihon and Og. They overcame them decisive victories. You read about them, one of the great things. And that's why when you read in the Psalms and other places that they defeated Sihon and Og, that was a great victory because nobody had ever beaten Sihon and Og other than that. And so that fear, that fear of Israel was all over the, the countryside there and all over that area the people were afraid of them. And so Balak sees this and he says, man, if these two greater nations uh, couldn't deal with them I don't know what I'm going to do. And you read over here in Numbers 22, Balak was very fearful and so forth. So he thought, you know what, I've got to do something against him. And so what he thought he would do is he would curse him. But he couldn't do it himself. So he went after this prophet, this Gentile prophet, by the name of Balaam. And he went up to Balaam. They knew each other. They conversed with each other. They probably had meals with each other. And he goes to Balaam. He says, "Balaam, listen. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I need to do. You, I need you to do me a favor." He said, "What would you like me to do?" He said, "Well, there's this nation coming through here. They've got about three million people. I want you to go over there and curse them." He said, "If you curse them, then that uh, bad luck will happen to them, and bad things will happen to them." And uh, Balaam tried. Four different times, but it never happened because God stopped him. And even we read about it here, that we read about the fact that his, even his own donkey stopped him from doing that. And so Balaam realized that he could not fight against God. Balaam had enough fear in him that he knew he couldn't fight against God and he would not. do Now he was a very bizarre person. He was very, very, very mixed up individual because he knew God's word. And there's some things that he says about God's word that are very good preaching passages. But, but Balaam himself was a man that was very, very confused in his way. He wasn't very settled on things and he wasn't a true prophet of God. So Balak tried to get him to to do it. But see, Balaam, even though Balaam said, listen, I can't curse him. He said, I have another way. He says, I can't curse him for you because he says, I can't do it for that. But he said, I'm still interested in your money. I'm still interested in wages of righteousness. I still want a reward. And he says, I've got a better way. And he says, if you can't curse them, then what do you want me to do? He says, I'll tell you what you're going to do. He tells Balak. Balak says, here's what you're going to do. We're going to, we're going to introduce a new doctrine here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm, going to have, I'm going to do something. I'm going to help you with something so that basically the men of Israel will let down their guard. And as they let down their guard, you're going to allow a process of infiltration into the camp of Israel and you'll overcome them and you'll get your victory you want there. And you'll notice here, if you go with me to Numbers 25, go to Numbers 25 very quickly here. We'll see what he did here. This process of infiltration. The Bible describes what he did here. He he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block. Now, stumbling block is, is, if you can imagine this, it's like having a stone in front of you that you didn't see and you tripped over it, okay? Now as Christians, listen to me tonight, as Christians, we have to be very careful that are in our testimony and in our actions and where we go and what we say, that we are not a stumbling block to other believers. A stumbling block is causing someone to question your faith and to question what you're doing and to be a stumbling block. Hey, we know as parents, the worst thing we would do as parents is to be a stumbling block to our children. That we want to be consistent and consecrated in what we do. In fact, more than being cons- consistent, we must be consecrated in what we do. And so Balak here said, said I, I'm going to teach you. Uh, he said, Balaam said here to Balak, I'm going to teach you to cast a stumbling block before them. So notice this here. Numbers 25. And by the way, we, we have mention of this in 1 Corinthians 10 as well. And it says, And Israel abode in Shittim. And the people began... To commit whoredom, same word for fornication, with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people, the men, unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat, now what were they eating? Foods offered to idols. And bowed down to their God. Now, we know in 1st, let me stop there for a minute. We know in 1st Corinthians 8, Paul said, listen, food offered to idols is not a problem. You can eat that. But, he said, you need to consider in your conscience, he said, whether or not it will be a stumbling block, you have Christian liberty... But you have to consider whether or not it would be a stumbling block to a believer who has a weaker conscience who grew up in understanding that foods offered unto idols was not a good thing as a Jew. He says you have to consider if it would be a stumbling block, don't eat that in front of that person. But it doesn't, it doesn't preclude you from eating that in private there. Well, in this case, at that time, food offered unto idols to eating that was not a good thing. It, it just showed an allegiance to that idol. That's what they were doing. They were eating this food offered to idols because they were all in about worshipping these idols. So what was this infiltration? Well, here's what Balaam told Balaam. He says, "I want you to do. I want you to take your cutest girls, your most beautiful women, and I basically want you, a little bit at a time, to introduce them into the economy of Israel." And you bring them into their tribes and get them there. And they'll do business there together and things like that. You just slowly get them in there. You infiltrate them. And these girls will befriend them. And these men will be enticed by, by the loveliness of these girls. And uh, they'll become lustful in, the, in that matter. And he said they'll introduce idolatry to the nation of Israel. And as they introduce idolatry to them, it will naturally lead. Because these women were these women were into, into the fertility cults and things of that nature. He said it will naturally lead into immoral behavior. And he says if you wanted to corrupt them. Because that was the goal. The goal of Balak was to corrupt. Do you understand tonight? The goal of Satan is to corrupt us. To corrupt your doctrine. To corrupt your morals. To corrupt your thinking. He wanted to corrupt what they were doing there. And so he said, why don't you just entice these young girls to come in? And, uh, and they can come in with their mini skirts and they don't have any standards. Pagans don't have standards. God's people should have standards. And he said, uh, pagans don't have standards. And so they, it doesn't matter how they dress. And these women were dressed. And you read about some of this. We, we talked about it a few weeks ago in Isaiah. Just how they they dressed and how those women were going. And, and as it infiltrated them, the, 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 the godly women started to see the, how the pagan women were dressed. The Moabites were dressed. And they said, well, you know, it, it doesn't hurt them. And it, it doesn't bother us. And so the, the, the women of Israel started to change their standards a little bit there. And this infiltration happened over part of time. And the Bible, as we understand, goes on here. The Bible says while they're abiding in Shinnom there, the Bible says they began to commit fornication. Watch what happened here. It began in verse 2 by this infiltration. They just got them to start worshiping their idols, and they didn't have a problem with that. And all this was behind the scenes where, where Moses did really know what was going on because this was happening inside the tents and in the households of the of the, of the Israelites there and, and they were kind of keeping from Moses there because these men didn't want Moses to find out to find out that they were living double lives and hypocritical lives there and so they were introducing these women into the in the mainstream there slowly and this and then they started noticing that the men were not as diligent about the worship of God and uh, they were there at the ceremonies and feasts but and the daily sacrifices but they Heart was not really in it because they could tell there was something else more exciting to them, and these men could not wait to run back to their tents and go back there because now they have these girls that they've entertained, these women that had come in that they were part of mainstream Israel now, and these women had seduced these men because that's that's the goal of Satan is spiritual seduction. John talks about that in 1 John 2:26. He says some have come in to seduce you in your faith, and so they were being seduced in their thinking, and they just came down to realizing, hey, there's nothing wrong with these mobile girls. Maybe Mo, uh, maybe Mo, Moses is just too much of an old fundamentalist. And we, we maybe, maybe Moses just needs to get with it. He's an older man. He doesn't really realize what's going on here. And so they just got with it. And the Bible says this, notice verse 3. The, the women, it worked. And the women seduced them. And the women led them into fornication. Would you notice the phrase here in verse 3? And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. Now, right in the your Bible, so next time you have your devotions, you read through Numbers 25, you write this down. Joined himself means they married themselves to Baal pure. They married themselves. I'm going somewhere. Stay with me. And the Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Pergabus, yeah, I mentioned this last week. Pergamus is two words. Gamus means married. Per means opposite or opposed to. The name Pergamus of the very city opposed marriages. Opposed marriages. What is the doctrine of Balaam? What is the doctrine of Balaam? Israel was a monotheistic nation. One God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Amen? Amen? Very first commandment. The very first commandment touches the affection of my heart and the worship of my soul to a great God. A God who's unending, who's everlasting, who's holy and true and faithful and all, all of those things. Amen? And Balak cast this stumbling block by introducing pagan worship through the beautiful women of Moab into mainstream Israel to where over a period of time it wasn't a problem. The doctrine of Balaam, listen to me tonight, the doctrine of Balaam is the sin of compromise. The doctrine of Balaam is the sin of compromise. You see, compromise happens everywhere in everything. But in a spiritual setting, among God's people, in the church, compromise is very deadly. Compromise is the infiltration of the devil into our doctrine, into our practices, and our beliefs. Now, I'm going to give you some definitions I gave last week when I preached from Isaiah. Compromise is when we give up something we should not in order to achieve something We don't need. And what I'm referring to there is spiritually. Compromise is giving up something we should not to achieve or to gain something we do not need. Compromise is changing the belief to fix the end result. Compromise is that phrase, the end justifies the means. Compromise is shaking hands with and making alliance with a person, philosophy or practice God is not in approval of. So God is writing to this church... That is stalwart. That has been steadfast. That has, that has held fast his name. Remember those terms he used there. They've held fast his name. And they've held fast the faith. This church was holding strong to God. I mean, it was a fundamental Baptist church there. I mean, it was a church that preached on the virgin birth of Christ. It was a church that promoted the deity of Jesus Christ. It was a church that lifted up the name of Christ. It was a church that lifted up salvation by grace through faith along through Jesus Christ. It was a church that upheld eternal security of the believer. It was a church that held strong to the doctrines of scripture. It was a church that had the right doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit of God. It was a church that had the right doctrine concerning the Word of God and all of those kind of things. It held fast. But over time, this church had been infiltrated through the doctrine of, through the sin of compromise, through the doctrine of Balaam. And he called it the Dr. Balaam because those believers there who'd been well taught the Word of God and had been preached the Word of God by Pastor Antipas, they knew exactly what was going on. God was making no mistake. He wasn't introducing some new doctrine to them that they didn't understand. This had been preached in their church. Listen to me tonight. There are things that have been preached in this church and get preached over and over again. God does not tell us something new. He just reminds of things we need to keep in mind all the time. Is that your problem is you're not worshiping Caesar. And your problem is not that you're worshiping Caesar. And your problem is not that you're worshiping the false Roman mythological gods that are there. Your problem is in that church is that you've allowed some to come in. You've allowed yourselves as pastors and as teachers and as Sunday school workers and as club sponsors and as members, you've let down your guard, and you've drifted. And there's the doctrine or the sin of compromise that's come within there. Okay. Now, what is, what is what 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 are we talking about here? Well, let me let me give you a few more things, and we're going somewhere. Number one, I want you to think with me for just a moment: the drifting compromise. The drifting compromise. Compromise is not dramatically something that happens right there, boom, because we wouldn't we wouldn't say, Well, we're not going to let that in." It, it happens. Over time, it's a drift. It's a drift. Okay. Uh, they warn you in in the if you're on the uh, on, on the on the Pacific Islands anywhere, Micronesia, Hawaiian Islands, things like that. They warn you to check the currents. If you're a kayaker, your best time is when the when the waves, the currents are calm. You go at four o'clock in the afternoon in any of those islands when the current's going strong. If you don't know what you're doing, you can start off outside of Maui and you're going to wind up way down. You're going to be way way down in Polynesia about in two hours there. You're going to be down in New Zealand if you're not very careful there. Okay? I mean, it's a drift. Okay? it happens over time. You, You start drifting there. Okay? now watch this tonight. Balaam brought in just a few Moabite women at a time. And Balak started using them. Men, men became friendly and the men decided there's nothing wrong with these girls and they seemed they seem nicer. That's what they say. They seem nicer than the girls at church. Don't fall for that. They seem nicer than the boys at church. Don't fall for that. They seem nicer than the Christians. They might be, but don't fall for that. It begins with the drift. And so compromise begins. We start to let down our guard. And we start thinking they're OK. Let me let me give you an example. Southern California, the church that's known for a book that went out. It's more known for the book that went out than it is for the name of the church. It's called the Purpose Driven Church. Saddleback Church. Good friend of mine, pastor down there for many years. I had dinner with him. My wife and I were down there. He asked me to preach a midweek service many years ago. We were down there on vacation. I said, sure, I'd love to preach for you there. If you don't mind, I'd be glad to. And I asked him, I said, now, have you ever met this man? He said, I have. I said, "Uh, so tell me about him. He said, brother Fogg, you won't believe this. This guy's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Such a nice guy. I said, do you have meals with him? Me? He says, no, I don't have meals with him. I said, why? He said, because I don't want to get to a place where I like him so much, I'm going to compromise. Right. Go ahead, Go ahead. Yeah. He said, I'm kind to him when I see him. But he said, I don't want to start a drift. Right. Compromise begins when we let down our guard and drift. It happens among singles in dating. Can't find the man here. Can't find the woman there. And I'm sympathetic to that. I can be, I can be a very mean person. Well, just bless God. Pray about it. I understand that, I understand that dilemma. But it begins with single dating. Let me encourage singles here tonight, please, with all my heart, with all my heart, don't start the drift. Don't start the drift. Because once you start drifting, you can't stop it. It's stronger than you. It's stronger than, it's like a riptide current. It's stronger than you. It happens in single, it happens in music. Have some music. You know what Pastor Howell did just recently? Part of his new series. He just preached a three-part series on Sunday nights on music. He's, and and I tell you, I've been in the church. They got good music at First Baptist in Bridgeport. They got great music there. OK, I mean, I don't I won't worry one bit about their stand. They sing a few choruses that are that are that are good. I wouldn't sing those choruses because I don't know them, but it's fine. They have a great spirit there and they, that's their liberty to do that. I'm not going to be critical of that, but I'm going to tell you, he preached on. He just let them know what's going on. Hey, I appreciate the Van Gelderens up there up there in Wisconsin. I mean, they, I appreciate their stand on the music there. OK, and maybe a little bit to the right, maybe far right than other people. But listen, it begins with the drift. It begin, and I'm going to remind you of my, what, what, what that preacher told me many, many years ago, Dr. Ed Nelson. He said, Brother Fong, let your theology dictate your music. Do not let your music dictate your theology. Yes. It happens with standards concerning drinking and entertainment. Well, Pastor, you understand. I understand that. When I started out after business school. The first man I had lunch with was a successful real estate man. I was trying to win him as a client. I said, "Can I buy you? Can I buy you a, a, a lunch?" My my mentor said, "You know what? Well, you want to get people, get them for lunch. They'll sit down and talk to you over lunch." I said, "Okay." And so the man did that, and he and he ordered a glass of wine. He said, "Would you like some wine?" And I said, "Man, this is my first test here, right?" And I said, no, thank you, sir. And he kept asking, would you like? So I said, no, thank you. And I've had many opportunities. I said, no, thank you. I had a good friend of mine that was a lawyer. We were, we were involved in a, in a thing many, many years ago. And uh, I thought he was a strong Christian. And we were invited to this thing. And I had introduced him to some people. And we were sitting down over dinner. And uh, they had just consummated a big deal. And we were sitting down there. And uh, they, they ordered some wine. I said, no, thank you. And my lawyer friend took the wine. And I looked at him. I said, I can't believe you're drinking this stuff, man. And he said, well, it's okay. I do this all the time. And I said, hey, "It hey, listen, you take a small sip and it's go from a small sip. You can become a drunkard if you're not careful there. You say, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. I do know what I'm talking about. I've seen it. It happens in business. It happens in travel. where success, Where success is more important than your family. It happens with our money. You stay around business long enough. They'll tell you that's a gray area. There are no gray areas with the word of God. It's either black or white. And it happens with doctrine. It happens with doctrine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just going to tell you, okay? You're you're stuck with me for a while here because I'm not going to let the doctrine drift. It's not going to drift here, okay? Now you're getting a little upset about that. I can see some red faces right now. It is not going to drift. Now you can drift, but the doctrine here is not going to drift, okay? It's not going to drift, all right? Now there's a drift. Secondly, there's a dilution. How do you become watered down? Because you drifted. I mean, Ananias died for the word of God. When pushed to the corner, how much do you really believe God's word? Are you just going to stand there and let the pastor take take the sword, or are you going to take a sword too? I'm just, you know, there's a delusion. When you when you're deluded, listen to me tonight. When when there's a drift. And there's a dilution, you don't have the same fire you had before. Right, yeah. ahead, and so, tendency slacks off, so many slacks off, involvement slacks off, sacrifice slacks off, everything's diluted. And so, we look at this and the doctrine of Balaam is an objectionable marriage. Okay, hey listen now, watch watches, watch because everybody knew this back in the first century. Here's what James said about this. You adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He knew what he's talking about. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here at the Church of Pergamus there. Okay? Now watch, we're not done yet, okay? This church now, over a couple years, had morphed. Instead of being the church in the world, listen, the world was in the church. That's what was happening. That's because of the drift. There's a drift, there's a dilution, there's a danger. Compromise leads to other sins. Notice what happens here. Thou hast, thou, thou hast there them that hold. Now before they held fast his name, and before they held fast the faith, but now there were some that are holding the doctrine of Balaam. And he starts off by saying, it began with eating things sacrificed to idols. They know it was wrong. And the first time they did it, they ate it. Their conscience was bothered. But that cute little Moabite girl served it up again. Second time, his conscience wasn't bothered. Third time, the cute little Moabite girl served it up another one. Didn't bother him. His conscience became hardened. That's what happens with this, okay? It becomes hardened. And so you get used to it and you get used to that, that you get used to that contemporary beat and you get used to that contemporary sound and you drift. And so you try to find a Baptist church that's gone that way. But my problem with the Baptist church has gone the way they don't go far enough. So the people that have a hungry appetite, they have a carnal appetite, they wind up leaving that contemporary Baptist church and they go all the way into a church out there in the world that's basically a worldly church. It doesn't even look like a church there for all that matters. And so watch what happens. At least other sins, watch what happens. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Watch what happens here. When the drift occurs, and we let down the standards, you become loosey goosey about your morals. Three weeks ago, I got a message that listed off. A particular church, group, and their so-called clergy. The Bay Area alone, which incorporates, you know, a lot of cities here. 300 clergy. And real close to us, just around the corner on the welling. They've had two of them that were pedophiles. They've circulated from there, between there and Fremont. When you drift, when you drift... Other things drift too, you let down that guard now i 'm going to go somewhere with this in a moment when we get to Dr. Latines, but it leads to other other sins. Israel committed fornication, there was a lot of things that happened there, and we know from our Bible that that basically one of the things that's going on today again that happened back in the '90s is they, they take the grace of God as Titus speaks about, and they turn it into lasciviousness. They say that the grace of God, you're, 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 too, you're, you're too stuck on yourself. And so they say, you need more grace about them. What they're really saying, they, they believe and teach that grace gives them a license to sin. Grace does not give you a license to sin. Grace is our teacher. For the grace of God that brings us salvation teaches us that denying ungodliness and worthy lust, that we should live soberly, godly, and righteously in this present world. The grace of God does not lead you into sin. The grace of God leads you to Jesus. It leads you to Jesus, okay? That's a false doctrine that's promulgated by the contemporary church that has now infiltrated young Baptists, young Baptists, so-called young fundamentalists who are not fundamentalists. Gehazi compromised when he chose the garments and silver over God and the Savior. Demas compromised when he forsook Paul loving this present world. So we look at tonight, the doctrine of Balaam is the doctrine of compromise. But second, I want you to go a little further. Let's go a little bit deeper. Now, remember, Jesus Jesus has to tell him some hard things here, okay? And he says, not only that, notice verse 15, the second doctrine, because this is the rebuke. So, has thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And what in the world... It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, look at John, what John said in verse 6 of the same chapter. The church at Ephesus, he speaks about them that were there, that were practicing the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We get to Pergamus, 95, 96 AD, it's now a full-blown doctrine. Now doctrine is something we believe, and we teach, and we live out through our practices. The word Nicolaitine is two words, you want to write this down. It's two words, the word Nikos, and the word Laos. Nikos, please remember this, and you find this, the word Nikos or Nike used quite often in the book of 1st John, it means to conquer. It means to conquer. So Nikos, Nikos, if you would, means to conquer. But the word laos is where we get our word laity, or speaking about the layman. And it means this. It was a hierarchy that was established in the churches that lorded over the flock of God. It was a hierarchy system, a hierarchical system that was established that was that was unfolding, you might say was evolving. It was unfolding there during that time that even Jesus himself made mention of. It began with the Pharisees and it is in every religious system if it's not very careful, where in the religious system there is a, there is a quest for authoritarianism in power by those in charge where they basically conquer the wills and the minds and the thinking Of those that they're supposed to be leading. And so, I want you to go with me to Matthew 23. Don't even look in your notes. I want you to go to Matthew 23 for a moment. And in Matthew 23, we have one of the strongest messages throughout the Bible. Matthew 23, if you're familiar with it, is Jesus' message against the Pharisees. And man, I'm telling you, he hated Phariseeism. Amen? And he hated hypocrites. And man, he let it rip. I mean, he let it rip there, boy. I mean, you you don't hear too many messages on on, on Matthew 23 because it's tough. It's really hard. I mean, you. I'd probably lose half the church if I preach that tonight, okay? I'd probably lose half the church. I mean, half the church is already gone. They're afraid of the coronavirus or Something there. I don't know what's going on there, okay? And um. these Pharisees, even though he didn't call it that, these Pharisees were practicing... The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's in churches. Notice what he says in verse 8. And be not ye called rabbi. For one is your master. Even Christ. And all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father. Capital F. Which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters. For it is your master. Even Christ. Nicolaitines. The doctrine of Nicolaitines. Is the exaltation. Of man. As God. Man is equal to God. And in the doctrine of the Nicolaitines. You want to write this down. Because it's probably none of your notes. It establishes an elaborate hierarchy. It violates the priesthood of the believer. Which I want you to understand tonight, that's why we're Baptists. That's why we're Baptists. Because in the acrostic for Baptists, one of our key tenets that's found in the Bible is the priesthood of the believer. What that means is this, for those of you new to this. The priesthood of the believer means I can go directly to God. I don't need to go through a man. Do you understand what I'm saying? Say amen. Say amen like a Baptist. Amen. Amen. I don't need to go through a man. Okay. I'm not Father Fogg. Don't get happy about that. Okay. I'm not Father Fogg. Okay. And some of my good Catholic friends that get saved, they say, oh, Father. I said, no, no, don't call me Father. You know what? Let me tell you something. I appreciate the spirit of Brother Sam Davison and, and the good folks there at Heartland Baptist Bible College, mainly Southwest Baptist Church. Nobody is doctor there. Nobody's. Nobody's, it's Brother brother Sam and Brother Jason and so forth. And, and I and I respect that over there. I don't want you doing that over here. I think you need to have the, some sense of respect and things. Not just because of the nature of the Bay Area. But they know what's talking about. And Jesus knew long before all this was going to unfold, just the mindset of people there. So this doctrine of the Latines you now it's unfolding now. Remember now, it's a doctrine now. It's unfolding. It's not full-blown yet. It gets full-blown in the 4th century. I'm going to give you some history here. It gets full-blown in the 4th century. It violates the priesthood of the believer. It removes Jesus Christ as the mediator between God and man. It honors man over God. It leads to man worship. And by the way, in Pergamos, that was nothing new, right? Right? Caesar's God. Caesar's God. I mean, it was nothing new to them. They they believed that. And uh, so there was nothing new. And so here's what happens. It removes accountability. The leader has no accountability. And the spiritual leader is so above everyone in the church, he cannot be held in question for unbiblical doctrine, immoral behavior, and taking advantage of the people. Now remember, what led to that was the doctrine of Balaam. He didn't say, I'm against the doctrine of Laetitians first. He said, I'm against the doctrine of Balaam first. And what happened here was that they let it slip on their doctrine where they just... There is a lessening of things. There's a dilution of the Christian faith there, and the standards of holiness, which is what the premise, the separation is all about. And the doctrine of laities got into place there. And this doctrine of basically said we're gonna we're gonna start doing some things that that involves man worship there. Okay. Well, what what does well, what does this mean here? Well, listen to this now. Listen to this. You better buckle your seatbelt on this. In in Revelation, he says, Jesus said, "Which thing I hate." I think we better pay attention if Jesus hates it. Amen? The practices of the Nicolaitan leader. You better listen to me tonight. Write this down. He told the people he could forgive their sins. People had to pray through him. He alone had the power... To determine who could be excommunicated and given damnation and hell. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I want you to step back from me, with me for just a minute. That doesn't sound too far different from a cult. Yeah. That doesn't sound too far different from a cult. Mind control. People control. Okay? That's a cult. And we have, we've had these Baptist churches where we've had these strong enigmatic personalities. Who basically do the command and the misuse and the abuse of the pulpit ministry. My word is what counts here. And he's a leader that's not accountable to any of his deacons, accountable to anybody else there, not accountable to his members, not even accountable to his spouse. Who behind the scenes, who in front of the people looks like he's holier than thou, but behind the scenes he's got immoral behavior, and we have a generation. I'm just going to tell you straight up, we have a generation. We've had these Baptist preachers here, who have, who have almost there at this point, have have allowed just watering down of things, and they're so stuck on their standards that they've elevated the standards above the Word of God itself, and they're at this place where there's immoral behavior going on. But nobody said anything about it. And it gets blown out. And then other Baptist churches, who have probably the same thing, same skeletons or closets, take this guy, who should be church disciplined, who needs to be dealt with by local church. They get him out of the church when he needs to be church disciplined there. They get him out of the church and they move him to another church to give him another pastorate. That's what was going on in those days. It's going on today too. And if you read Paul Chapel's book, The Road Ahead, he deals with that whole section there about the importance of accountability and that whistleblowers should not be shamed for what's going on there and we're not taking from the sectors but realizing that it's blown over. And I'm going to tell you, there's one I preach in a certain place where I thought this man was clear and clean and then... A few weeks later, and I even took a picture and I tweeted it and said, "Thank God for this man and for this, this ministry." And, and I really thought he was okay there. And he just—we spent some time in the office. I thought, "Man, this guy's got a great heart for God." And then to find out—it blew—it it, it just blew out the church he was at before all this. The church he was at—he'd messed with a minor and had been swept under the carpet, and nobody dealt with it until the new pastor came in. And this person came back; who was a minor at that time. Now she's an adult woman. She came in and told the pastor what was going on. He did a full-blown investigation. He, I, I think if it was me, I would have turned it over. To the police first and let them do. It. But he did a full-blown investigation on this, and he just got into this thing probably a little bit more than he probably should have. When he got into it and exposed it, and he called it out, and the same church this man was working in, they didn't expose it, they didn't deal with it, and they shuffled him from there to another part of the country. And he went there, and he was at this other part of the country. They're about just about to just about to have a, a new Bible college they we were going to introduce with this man who has a scandal going on in his life. And then it went to trial, and finally, before he went to trial, they finally after several years of investigation, they came went down there, they called him back home to his home state they brought him to his home state and there he was served with a notice that he was, he was being indicted for crimes against a minor things like that, that the statute of limitations had not expired against this man and today that man, has got he's got mud all over his face, he's ruined because of that and yet there's some in the in the Baptist community who have this mindset of the doctor of the laitines are saying, well this man's okay and you don't understand these people are I'm going to tell you what, right now that person was a victim that he hurt he messed that person up, he messed up their mindset and all those things and here, here we find this immoral behavior there he changes doctrine, he changed his behavior let me tell you tonight, I have so much I can say on this in the church of Pergamos, there was immorality running rampant inside the church that's why I tell you teachers I tell you teachers, especially you men you do not let a little child sit on your lap and every teacher here has to be live scanned and brother Daniel or brother Daniel or brother Daniel, we're probably going to have to get a re scan just to make sure I got everybody's clear on their records. I mean, there's so many things I could tell you about that. The worst scandal that can ruin a church—an immoral scandal. We're not done there yet. I mean, I want you to think about the power—the power the Nicolaitan leader has. Third John nine. Would you go there, please? 3 John 9. Go over a couple pages. Now I'm trying to teach you something so you understand where we're going with this. Okay? We're not done yet. It gets better, by the way. Amen? It gets better than this. And the Lord said to John in 3 John 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbideth them that would, and cast them out of the church. Now, I'm not sure if he was a pastor, but here's a thought I want to give you here. When I read this, and I get into, into the study of this, Diotrephes... Was practicing the doctrine of the, the Laotines, the Nicolaitines. Do you know what his name means? Do you know what his name means? No, it's worse than that, brother. Nourished by Jupiter. His very name means nourished by Jupiter. The city of Pergamus was rampant with gods, named after all the gods of Roman mythology. His actual name was the original name for Jupiter, Jove. Nourished by Jove. If you've heard the English say, by Jove, that's, that's probably a bad term to use. If you've ever used it, don't use it. Amen. Now watch what happens here. Jesus tells his church about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They knew what he was talking about. A man that could, who popped himself up, that he could forgive the people of their sins, that they had to pray through him, that he had all authority in them, even to creating fear in the people. They couldn't do anything without kissing his hand and seeking his favor and his approval on things of that nature and having the power to, to say that he had the power to excommunicate and even to, 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 to declare a damnation for persons so to hell. Fast forward with me. This is all going on in the Roman Empire. Are you with me tonight? This is all going on in the Roman Empire. It's 95 AD. 95 AD. Fast forward with me to 312 A.D. 312 A.D., we have a man by the name of Constantine. Constantine had been exposed to Christianity. The Roman Empire had laid waste to the Christian movement. The Roman Empire had slaughtered a lot of our forefathers, a lot of our all the brothers and sisters. They had slaughtered them. They, they put them in the coliseums and fed them to the lions. I mean, they did all these atrocities to our, to our Baptist forefathers there. In 312 A.D., Constantine, who is now one of the Caesars... Now, he's in the lineage of the Caesars. And he's familiar with the Christians. And he's at this battle called the Battle of Maxentius. And it was a battle over a bridge. And he made this statement to... Listen to me tonight. He made a statement to one of his generals. He said, if I win this battle, I will become a Christian. And they say before they engage in battle for this bridge at Maxentius... That he looked up in the sky... And he saw this symbol, and basically he saw these words in Latin that basically said to him, you're going to conquer. That's what it said, you're going to conquer. And Constantine won the battle. And as he won the battle, he got up and made a great public speech. Listen to me tonight, you can find this in world history. He made this big public speech, and he said this, I want everyone to know that I declare myself a Christian. Well, there was no regeneration by faith through Jesus Christ. There was no regeneration of the Holy Spirit of God. He wasn't born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. He just declared himself a Christian. He was an unconverted, unbaptized, so-called Christian. But because he was the emperor, because he was the emperor, and because people were used to the phrase, the emperor is God, Caesar is God, he now had just sent some ripple waves throughout all of Rome. And now he sent these ripple waves through. And you have to remember back in those days that... All of these cults and these pagan practices and the priests of all these false religions, the priests of Jupiter and Mercury and Mars and Dionysius and Athena and Escalopius and all these, they were on the payroll of Rome. They were being paid for this. And so these priests are very quickly thinking, what do we do? What do we do? We're going to be out of a job. We're going to be killed. So quickly they got they got wind of what was going on, and all of them did the same thing. They thought out the Christians. They said, "Hey, I want you to baptize me." They sought out. They didn't seek out Baptist churches like ours. They sought out weak believers because at the time there were compromising churches and one of the battles if you read if you read about the trail of blood The great battle we had in those early days of the church was the battle for proper proper mode of baptism And there were some churches there at that time that were practicing alien modes of baptism They were doing sprinkling and baby baptism things like that There's only one kind of baptism the bible says and that baptism is baptism by immersion and so they found these compromising churches that were baptizing babies and baptizing by sprinkling. And they said, would you baptize me? And so these priests came on and they were sprinkled or had water poured on them. And all of a sudden now they are converted Christians. Listen, there was no regeneration of their heart. And all of a sudden we see this this marrying of the state and the so-called church. Well, let me fast forward a few years later. A few years later, you know this from history. There was the counts of Nicaea, Nicaea. In 325 AD there's a Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea they, they brought together to declare, to talk about the doctrines of the faith, the deity of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth and what they believed. And they wanted to establish a creed of things there. And there were the, the true Christians, the true believers, if you would, the true Baptists did not attend this thing. The true Baptists did not have participation in the stuff there. But there were those who did. And here comes Constantine, Constantine coming down in the glitter in his gold and his wonderful garments there and people bowing to him. And he's uniting all these things together. And this is all coming together there. There's this compromise that's going on. And they're recognizing him, and he's the one, if you watch this, he's the one who now is established, he's taken this a step further. He's taken this doctor, the Nicolaites, and basically, if you would, he's kind of the emperor of this whole thing. And people came to him to ask him what he thought about this, because they were afraid to cross him. And so, some things are unfolding right now, because in these temples, these temples that they worship these false gods, these temples are now being converted, and they call them churches. They call them churches. And the idols that they had there in those shells, and those idols they had in those caves, and those idols they had there that had pagan names assigned them like Jupiter and Mercurius and things like that, they now are taking the names of martyrs and the names of believers like Peter, and they're saying, okay, the Bible uses a word called saint. We're not going to call him Jupiter anymore. We're going to call him Saint Peter. And Constantine is going to establish a hierarchy which says... Of men who basically say, I can forgive your sins. And I can declare and determine your damnation to hell. Or I'll excommunicate you from this church. And basically it was one way, decided by that, the Bible was not the authority. Constantine was the authority. Listen, when Constantine died, he asked for someone to come and pour water on him to baptize him, to wash away his sins. Water does not wash away your sins. The blood of Jesus Christ washed away your sins. And so what does Jesus say here? Look back at Revelation. He said, This church, he saw what was, he knew what was coming down. They had the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus said, Which thing I hate. Let me tell you tonight, I'm almost done. Jesus hates false doctrine. Jesus hates man worship. Jesus hates a religion, a belief system where man thinks he's God. Jesus hates immoral behavior in the church. That's what he's saying there. Now we see the rebuke. As we close tonight, I want you to see the remedy. That's the good part. Amen? Amen? It's a two-point sermon, but you wouldn't know that by the way I was preaching tonight. Amen? First of all, verse 16, very quickly, notice what Jesus said. In this remedy, first of all, there has to be a contrition. He told the church, now you've messed up. Can I, can I look up here for a minute? Can I I help you with this? Would you help me and help God? When it's your sin, have contriteness. Be repentant. If you can't be contrite publicly, you've got a pride problem. You have a pride problem. Amen? You have a pride problem. And your pride problem is not with me. Your pride problem is with God. The moment God touches your heart about something, you need to get on your face before God. And he said, repent. You don't need definition of that. Why are we redefining repentance? You know what repentance means. Turn from this wickedness. Have sorrow in your heart. Godly sorrow. God called them out. He said, repent or else. I'll fight with you. I'll fight with them against the sword of my mouth. And so there must be contrition. Secondly, would you notice the conquering? And this is where we get into our, these, these illustrations I want you to see tonight. Look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. Now you see the word, the words here. Him that is a Nikos. Him that is a Nikos, not a Nikos Laotine, but a Nikos. To him that overcometh. Don't be overcome, but over, by being overcomer. Amen. Well, some of us tonight need to stop being overcome by all these different things that overcome us. Our fears, our anxieties, our worry, our sin, and realize in Jesus Christ we are overcomers. Amen? amen. And so he said here, to, to him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna? Now this is not unleavened bread, but it'll do for tonight, amen. In Pergamus, Pergamus, the people were used to being exposed to secret, mystical mysterious practices, honestly, witchcraft, the occultism. And so people thought if they did those things in secret, they had a special power, a special favor. And God knew that that had permeated the mindset of the Christians, their pergamus because remember, they were the church in the world, but now the world was in the church. And when the world's in the church, the church is diluted and watered down. And doctrine needs to get back to its proper place. The best diet for a church is backslidden and a church that is her, that's that's got messed that's messed up things is a doctrine of, is a, is a diet of the doctrine of the Word of God. You got to get refed the doctrine of God's Word. And so Jesus is saying here: Listen, okay, if you're going to overcome, him that overcometh, He says, I've got a reward for you. He says, I, He says, I'm going to help you conquer. He says, He says, I will give you to eat of the hidden manna. Now, Jesus is playing on words there because using the term hidden, he said, OK, now you think from what you've heard that those secret practices are the secret to power. But Jesus said, I'm going to tell you something better. He said, I'm going to take you back a few thousand years before that when the children of Israel were down in the in the they were down there in the in the wilderness. And you find this, I believe, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 16, where God said, I'm going to give you manna from heaven. And this manna from heaven was God's daily provision. Six days a week, we give them enough to eat. And the manna satisfied their soul. By the way, how many understand tonight? Manna was angel's food. Amen? Manna was angels food. And manna was the bread from heaven. And manna is a picture of Jesus Christ. And they were to take, and, and Moses was to take some of that manna. And he put it inside, the, he put in the Holy of Holies there, there, and he put that hidden manna there. And they, and there's some traditions and legends that say that someone took some of that and hid it, and they said they're gonna, and it's hid in a certain place, and then when the millennial kingdom comes, it'll be revealed again. I don't know about that, but I can tell you this, Jesus was going somewhere. He said, listen, now you've been taught, and you've been led to believe, you've been misled to believe that you can hold fast these secrets mysteries. Because remember now, the doctrine of Balaam had come in. They'd been compromised and they were they had compromised themselves. And now God, Jesus is trying to reverse all that and correct them and give them on the right remedy. He says, now I'm going to tell you something. He says, I'm going to give you something really good. He said, when you overcome, he said, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. And they knew exactly what he's talking about. The hidden manna was basically saying, listen, I'm going to help you. You're going to partake of me and you're 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 going to have a diet of Jesus. And by the way, I can't think of a better diet than a diet of Jesus. Amen? A diet of Jesus' word and a diet of Jesus Christ in my life. And he says, I'll give you the hidden manna and he says i'll go i'll take care of you it'll be sweet to your soul and he says here i'll give you to eat of the hidden manna And he says i'll take care of you there the man is a picture of jesus who's our bread of life and he's saying you don't need their secrets you don't need these mystical things walk with me and i'll take you to this secret place and feed you somewhere listen tonight for some of us and tomorrow morning we're going to open the precious word of God we're going to be exhausted physically but spiritually we're looking to get refreshed and renewed and we're going to read God's word and God's going to give us something and through that hidden manna He's going to feed our soul and that hidden manna in secret when nobody else is watching when nobody else is there to bother you nobody else is there to disturb you you get there alone with God and that hidden manna is that bread from heaven the bread hot out of, out of heaven's oven where God feeds your soul listen He said I'll feed your soul your, fo- your soul is famished and your soul is depleted but He said I'm going to feed your soul with that hidden manna. And I'm going to say to you tonight, some of us need to get to the place our souls are so depleted and so starved, you need to get back on a diet of Jesus Christ and get the Word of God to flow through your life again. Amen. He talks about this hidden manna. But notice he talks about a white stone. I will give to eat of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone. Now we don't understand that, but the white stone had a multiplicity Of meanings. First of all, stones were used in a judicial setting. A judge presiding over a case, when it was time for him to make a decision, he had two stones on his table. They were visible to the one being accused, the defendant. A black stone, a dark stone, was put out. He was guilty and condemned. The white stone that was put out meant acquittal and exoneration. Which stone would you like to have if you're the one accused? Amen. And he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. And what he was saying to them is that when you overcome, he says, listen, you don't have to be burdened down. By this sin, these sins that you're guilty of, he says, you repent, you confess your soul, your sins, and I'm gonna give you a white stone. Aren't you glad tonight that when the blood of Jesus, when you trusted Jesus Christ, your Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ took those darkness of our sins and made them white in the sight of God? The white stone there, it was a, it was a, it was a symbol of acquittal. Hey, there's something else. White stones were used to signify citizenship. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone because I want people to know that you belong to me and I belong to you. It was a representation, of citizenship that Jesus owned. Hey, listen to this. White stones were used as a symbol of, for victory. They were given to those who won a victory in one of the ancient games. They called these white stones to the victor. If they gave it to him. they called them a tessera stone. And this testar stone Would have two initials on it The initials would be SP SP stood for Spartacus Aspecticus uh, And it basically meant That his valor had been proven Beyond all doubt Hey our Lord says this Listen It's hard to be a Christian I understand that It takes some courage To be a godly Christian But he says If you overcome if you, if you throw up This doctrine of Balaam And you throw up This doctrine of the Nicolaites And you stop this compromise And you stop this immoral behavior And you stop this worldliness And you stop this living He said listen You've overcome that. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone to symbolize that you're a conqueror, that you're a victor over those things. I mean, I'm mean, i saying to you tonight, when we look at this white stone, Jesus is telling us through all of this that He loves us and He's concerned for us and He wants us to be on victory's side and He wants us to conquer and overcome and not to be conquered by those things. But listen, a stone, a white stone had something else. A white stone was a symbol of friendship. Two friends would take the white stone and they'd break it in half. One would take one stone, one half, the other would take the other half they part their ways, and when they would come back again, then they met together, and they would be friends that perhaps were, were lived, lived miles away. They'd come back, and they joined join these stones together as a symbol of the union they had in their friendship. And he's basically saying, listen, I'm your friend. I'm not against you. I'm for you. I'm your friend. I'm with you there. It was a symbol of our friendship. It's a symbol of a lasting relationship. But listen, when a person was given a white stone, it also represented that this person had, had, was given access. If you went to a party or dinner, a dinner party for a very wealthy person, on your seat, the wealthy person, this was in every banquet, they would put a white stone. And the white stone represented that that man thought well enough of you, that host of the party thought well enough of you. With that white stone, listen this, you have access to every room in that home. Aren't you glad tonight, To the white stone of Jesus Christ, we have access to the prayer room of heaven? Amen. Access to God. Access to God. Listen, when those believers heard that, that was such an encouragement to them about this white stone. Then he says something else. We're almost done. Would you notice this in verse, verse, verse 17? He said, I'll give you a white stone. And then he said this. Then he said, And in the sto- that stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. When you were given a white stone, You a message would be written on it. Even more so, the man's name would be on it. And it was a beautiful picture of relationship and friendship and intimacy. When somebody important gave you the white stone with a new name, it meant this I want to be so close to you. I want you to be my best friend. I'm glad tonight when you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and I trust Him as Savior, He's our best friend. You can't get any closer than that with Jesus Christ here. And so tonight we see the conquering. And then go back to verse 16 as I close. We see also consequence. He said, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them. With the sword of my mouth. Now Jesus either fights for us. Or he's going to fight against us. I'd rather have him fight for me. Amen. Amen. Churches that are not true to him. Lose their biblical authority. They have no biblical authority. Churches that don't hold up the doctrine. And all compromise to get in. They'll lose their authority. And for some of the teacher meetings coming up, I'm going to identify for you some things I've been very bothered about for a long time, where we've just let some things slip. And they're not doctrinal things, but I'll give you an example of one tonight. I'm just going to give you one, and I'm done. We have this distinction, and I'm certain in a lot of Baptist churches, this distinction of this one-service mentality that's throughout our world. They come from a church model where they only meet one hour a week of even that. Or a church model where there's all this singing and things going on. I'm not against that. That goes on for 35 minutes straight. And special music that comes up where the people get up and it's more of an entertainment than it is edification. And the so-called speaker or pastor gets up and and if if it's a good Sunday, you get a 15-minute message. And that's what people want. That's what people want. And I want to tell you this morning, this evening, the mentality of a one-hour-a-week Sunday morning crowd does not drive the direction of a church. I said the, the, I said the mentality of a Sunday morning only church attendee does not drive the direction of the church. Now, there's something not right if you don't have a hunger to get God's word. Get your soul fed. Get your face ripped every now and then, amen? mean, there's something wrong if, in our heart if we don't want that. Language should not be an excuse. Brother Reyes and Mona, okay? Mona doesn't speak, doesn't speak that much English. And Hermana Alvarez, one of our great Christians here, they have to listen to translation. It's being translated right now by Brother Eugene. They are that is, Language is not an excuse. Brother Kenny Lay, one of my good friends in church, he's his is he struggles with my English. I struggle with my English, okay? And uh and, and you know what? He comes even when there's no translation and he figures it out, but he loves God. Language is not an excuse. If I'm in a foreign country and I don't understand it, I'm going to find a way, because God put me there, I'm going to find a way to get edified no matter what. It'll be hard. I understand that. But we're not going to have a church trying to grow and go somewhere for God where Sunday morning only mentality, one hour a week mentality is going to drive the church. Not going to happen here. And don't you let some of you getting tired and weary and you're wondering, why can't we be like that church and that church? Let me tell you, don't let don't let the weaker ones drive you. You're the strong one. Pull them up. Parents, your teenagers object to coming to church. They squirm in their seats. They fall asleep. They do all those things. That's a maturity thing. That's also carnality. But I'm going to tell you, you don't let your teenagers drive what your conviction should be about church. And teachers, you ought to be bothering your heart. I'm bothering my heart. I bother with this every Sunday. Of the people who are not in church. Not with their sickness. There's a lot of sickness right now, and I understand that. But I'm not going to let this coronavirus thing affect our church. That's why I made the public statement today. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna we're gonna have to enforce some uh, you know safety and healthy things to, and we should, and we need to do that thing because it's the right thing to do. But I'm not gonna let that scare the church off. So tonight, the church of Pergamus. It was a church that let hell in, but it was a church that Jesus still loved. And he said, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. He gives us two things tonight. Would you leave with this? Get the hidden manna. Get all of Jesus you can. Amen? Get that hidden manna. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. Secondly, he promises a white stone to him who overcometh. Think of the axis with that stone. Think of the intimacy through that stone. Think of the acquittal through that stone. That white stone had great, great symbolic meaning to the people there. That's so why I gave this to you tonight, that so you remember that white stone and the hidden manna. That's Jesus Christ. You know what, tonight... That was a hard message. But I want to end with this. We have a great God. We have a great God. We have a good God. A loving God. And He loves us. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for letting God take His Word, help you understand how all this unfolds. Why? Because He wants to draw us to Himself, to be closer to Him. Tonight, would you find your place at the old-fashioned altar and say, God, I want that hidden manna. And say, God... Maybe I need the white stone of acquittal. I'm not saved. I need the white stone of acquittal. He'll give it to you tonight. And I want the white stone of friendship. And I want the white stone of the victor. But you get it. Now, don't let whatever it is overcome you. He says to him that overcomes. You be an overcomer tonight because you have a God who gives you the power and the ability. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Our Father tonight. Took a little bit extra time to give teaching explanation from this passage, but Lord, it's good stuff. It's good. It's the Word of God. And Lord, we come this evening with a repentant spirit and heart that, Lord, you would, you would just have your way in this church and, uh, God, that we'd live for you. I, I really pray tonight you deliver us. God, help us to see through things this evening that would not allow these, these unbiblical doctrines to come in. We realize tonight that God, that doctrine is godly. Doctrine is guaranteed and doctrine is to be guarded. And I pray that tonight that we would guard the doctrines of your word and realize that Jesus, there's some things Jesus hates. They're grievous things. I don't like preaching on these things in the flesh, but I know that by the spirit of God that we have to bring these things up. Pergamus was an objectionable marriage. A marriage of the church with the state and the state with the church. Man had elevated himself to the place of God. I'm thankful tonight you're the only one who can forgive sins. I'm thankful tonight that Lord, I have access directly to you. Jesus is my mediator between God and man. Tonight I pray that we'd recognize tonight that we are a royal priesthood. A chosen generation. That we'd show forth the praises of Him that love us. Deliver us tonight from insecurities and fears. A diluted, watered-down Christianity. Idols in our life that need to be forsaken. Covetousness. Someone who can be easily persuaded or bought. When we need to be someone who's strong in the faith. Someone perhaps tonight who's struggling with lustful temptations that needs to bring that in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ for spirit control, that we not walk in the flesh but walk in the spirit, that we not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Father, would you take the word of God this evening and you've driven it home because you said repent or else I will come quickly and fight against thee. Lord, you've shown us some things tonight. Help us to deal with it tonight. there's ever a place and time, deal with it right now. In our homes, God, deliver our homes from idols. God, deliver our homes from fighting and wars. And Lord, I pray for our homes to be places of love and encouragement and kindness and forgiveness and the love of God. Whatever it may be tonight, I pray you'll cover all that. Then tonight, if somebody here is not saved, I pray they'd recognize how much you love them. And that white stone of acquittal is offered to everyone who places their faith in Jesus. Thank God when Jesus died on the cross, the dark stone of guiltiness was put away, and the white stone of acquittal is on the table. God, I pray by faith some would take that tonight if they're not saved. Would you have your way tonight during the invitation time? We pray for this in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to stand tonight. Piano's going to play. My wife's playing. You need to come. Would you find your place at the altar? God can use a passage like this to stir our hearts for revival. How about it tonight? How about it tonight? To him that overcometh, I will give to eat. Of the hidden manna. You know what? The Lord wants to give us more than anything else. He wants us to have more of Him. Greater fellowship. Sweeter fellowship. To taste and see that the Lord indeed is good. Father, in a moment I ask that you dismiss us with your blessings. It's been a very long weekend and your people are tired. They're weary. Please give them rest tonight. Some of us still have a few meetings to go to, but, Lord, we pray that you'd bless these meetings. And, uh, Lord, we pray tonight that you'd give our, our church a great week. Help everyone determine tonight before they go to bed to be in their devotions or tomorrow morning. Lord, we trust in you. We ask that you help us to be more than conquerors, and you promise that we are because you love us. Father, I pray for journeys, mercies for our people. I pray that you touch infirm bodies and sickness and ailments. ailments. That be wellness and healing. Dismiss this in a moment with your blessing. Thank you for your goodness tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.